Welcome to the 15th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about using the cloud. The cloud! So last episode, we had talked a little bit about cloud backups and other pieces, and we decided it was worth a little more time and exploration into modern applications of the cloud and kind of where things go that in that direction these days. And I definitely thought that, that one of the first aspects of the cloud is ease of doing backups. And it's definitely a whole lot more now. Are we going to count other quote-unquote cloud providers like uh, Backblaze or CrashPlan in this, besides just S3 and the known players in the market? Well, there's... Man, is Backblaze a real cloud provider? They don't support Linux. They run all their stuff on Linux, though. They, isn't, that, isn't that awesome? They definitely are a cloud provider of backups and whatnot. I'm not sure if they serve businesses. I think they're only in the... Or they're more targeted towards the the personal market or the very small business market. They're not targeted towards large enterprises of, you know, a thousand employees well, or whatever. True. But, yeah, I would consider them cloud considering the storage pods they do and the other scaling work they've done to make backups just happen. And you, you don't have to think about Oh, am I buying enough space? Can I provision enough space? It's you just do it and it just works. And yeah. You're, and you're going for individual use or small or medium company use, they're fantastic. Yeah. I'm yeah, I, completely sold on them. I, I do have to give Backblaze credit because they do publish their storage pods, the, the design. Uh, they, I think there's even some companies now that have formed a, to build them and sell them to you if you don't want to do it yourself. Uh, and it's I've really been to a Backblaze talk before, and the technology they've got uh, behind the scenes is is really pretty cool. If they would only support Linux clients, weren't weren't they going to have like a beta at one time? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I use CrashPlan mostly because when I started, I had Open Solaris boxes, and they had an Open Solaris client of all strange things. And CrashPlan like, supports everything. Well, Java does run everywhere, right? Yeah. And so I went from that, and I still I still use all those pieces, but my open Solaris boxes are now FreeBSD boxes, and they will soon be Linux boxes, and I'll just transition my backup sets over, and it'll be clean and happy. Um, for cloud stuff, when people talk about cloud backups, they're generally talking about business cloud backups. So that brings you mostly into the S3 and then whatever the equivalent services in Google and Azure would be for object and file storage. And they're pretty awesome. They're well supported by basically every piece of software ever written at this point. They have good security. They have good policies. If you don't feel comfortable with Amazon having your security keys, you can generate your own. Or if you don't feel comfortable with Amazon managing your security keys, you can manage your own. They're happy with that. All of these things work pretty well, and the costs keep on coming down. One of the clients that I work for recently wanted to transition a bunch of archival data from standard S3 to infrequent access and then to Glacier because of the cost savings. And I had not previously been aware of the infrequent access tier, um, and I got hands-on experience with Glacier, and I it's a lot easier than I possibly imagined it ever was. The infrequent access tier is similar to standard where you don't have the limits that Glacier gives you for 
size of retrieval and speed of retrieval, but you do pay for access. It's the idea is, okay, it is S3, but you are basically saying, I'm going to read this data less than about twice a month. And if you're going to do, read it less than about twice a month, it's it's cheaper to put in, in, in infrequent access. And the lifecycle policies are XML documents, which or JSON blobs that you can put up in you put up into the console and then you can have it automatically cycle objects from one category to the next as you do it. And if you use a lifecycle policy to move from S3 to Glacier, you can still view the files in S3, which is really kind of nice. Does that count against your Glacier um, reads or whatever if you view it through the through the S3 browser or whatever? So the S3 side of the Glacier transition, it it's, it caches all the metadata for the objects in S3. So you're paying S3 lookups, not Glacier lookups. So that that is a cost savings right there. And it also means that your S3 tools work with it. You are still bound by Glacier's rules about the size and speed of access. So if you put a terabyte of data into Glacier, I think it's 20% a month or... They, they have a, a cap, which you before you use it, you need to read about this cap of how much data you have in Glacier that you can access for free every month and how fast you can access it. Because basically they take that that chunk of data and they spread it out across the entire month. So if you have a terabyte of free data read, that means that you need to basically spread it out over hourly chunks throughout the entire month. Otherwise, they're going to charge you for... They're going to really bill you. Um, Glacier will save you 10 times the cost, but read the documentation on access because otherwise you're going to get burned really bad. Glacier, the 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 best use for Glacier is for liability concerns. If you have reasons where you have to be able to retrieve old documents, but otherwise don't ever need to read them or retrieve them, um, storing them in Glacier is is beautiful. It's cheap. It's reliable, um, and it takes care of your liability concerns. But yeah, um, there are some very careful things that one needs to read about uh, the costs for restoring from Glacier. Before we move off the topic of backups, one other interesting thing came to mind in that rsync.net now offers ZFS replication to the cloud. And their costs are significantly higher than the costs for S3. They're $60 for a terabyte month, but it's there and it's encrypted and it's a pretty cool offering. So you should check that out as well. So uh, since we're, we're talking about the cloud, I figured we should, we should maybe start off with, with what I would call maybe cloud 1.0 <laughs> and uh, virtual, private, virtual private servers or VPSs. Because, um, you know, the cloud is a, is a trendy word right now, but I mean, technically that concept has been around for quite some time. It's just been sold as virtual private servers, and um, the the providers I used to use anyway. I, I've since moved on to AWS, but I used to use a Linode for for many years. I still think they're pretty pretty good. They've had some some sad security uh, track records in the last few years, but uh, but DigitalOcean has really jumped up here in the last little bit. Um, and, and really given Linode a, a run for their money. I still recommend Linode for folks that are that are on the cusp of trying to figure out 
how to use cloud resources to 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 duplicate what they have with with physical resources. It's a little bit more of an easier learning curve than uh, going diving in the AWS documentation. That's for sure. But yeah, I used them for years. Well, and, and I still think, and and honestly, if you're comparing like running a VPS instance versus an AWS instance, although now it's kind of getting a little little more favorable on the AWS side, but I, I I would still bet that you would save money going the the VPS route versus um, AWS. Now, if you start playing with dedicated instances and especially reserved instances. Yeah, you can get the price down pretty cheap. You can go it down pretty uh, but cheap. But Linode's trying their best to be competitive with EC2 prices, which um, I think their base plan is 10 bucks a month, and that's a pretty uh, reasonably powerful VM you get for that. The other thing about AWS is if you're not, if you don't fully understand the stack at AWS, you're going to get hit by other charges of, oh, well, you needed an elastic volume, and you needed this, and you wanted a load balancer, and you needed other pieces and you, you won't realize the costs have gone up until you get your bill. Whereas with Linode, bandwidth. yeah, with Linode, you know, it's 10 bucks a month and that's what it is. Yeah. And I, I still think Linode is the king in terms of hardware, just because they, they tend to be more uh, heavy in terms of w- with hardware. I know that they recently had a huge hardware upgrade networking wise and hardware uh, box wise. And I still think if you were actually to run benchmarks against them and most VPS providers, they tend to edge out in almost any metric that you that you can um, run against them. And they have reasonable APIs now and and backup services and other add-on services as well. So um, they're they actually still really do try to compete with um, the larger cloud providers out there. Yeah, I mean, they, they uh, what was it, a few years back, they added a load balancer, so you don't even have to run some dedicated instances to do that. I think the only thing that both them and, I think DigitalOcean has this, like, in private beta now or something is is a, is basically, a like, a, a block storage, like an S3 type thing where you can add some extra storage on your nodes. I know that, like I said, I think DigitalOcean's adding that. I don't know about Linode, but I'm sure that's not too far behind. And for a lot of small businesses who only need... A handful of servers, like only truly a handful of servers exposed to the internet, it's a really great solution. Keeps costs relatively low, and then you have your development stuff and stuff in house, and you push changes up to those servers. And if those servers get compromised, you aren't you aren't compromising your your internal networks. So it's a it's it's a really awesome solution for a lot of small shops, or really just having a DR site off site. Uh, if you need a backup DNS server or backup Kerberos infrastructure in case there's a uh, an outage in your primary data centers, easy option, cheap option. So one of the things I like about the cloud uh, is is hosting of static websites and the trend nowadays to uh, uh, take your blog website, your very common WordPress alike. Uh, sort of sites and really turn them back into the static websites that they really kind of are and have uh, services that do uh, comments like discuss um, and other services that do shopping carts and things along those lines so that your basic your website is really not basic at all and still has all the features of a dynamic website but is stored in like Amazon S3 or uh, Google's object store and is 
uh, referenced from that point instead of having to run a a EC2 instance, a server, a Linux box somewhere to to serve that website. And by doing that, websites become incredibly cheap. Um, the reason I moved off of Linode uh, was because the Linode box was costing me 10 bucks a month to run my personal website. I moved my personal website to Amazon S3, um, fronted it with uh, Cloudflare, which also has a free plan. That's very interesting for folks. Free SSL, might I add. Um, and that setup costs me a dime a month, 15 cents a month. And I like my website better. My website's less prone to failure. Um, I've, I've really got a better website that scales better. And I have free SSL. And you don't have to worry about the the constant stream of PHP or MySQL or other bugs that come into dynamic websites that for a simple blog, most people don't actually need any of those. They don't need what you get out of a, a dynamic website or a scripted, a scripted language or the database in the back end. But what they get out of it is all the security problems and all of the other hosting issues that, that come along with it. Whereas with a static set of files in an S3 bucket, well, what are you going to hack? There's nothing to hack. There's nothing to hack. I mean, the real security threat there is that somebody gets your API keys and then overwrites your bucket. Yeah. But that's it. And speaking of SSL, Amazon themselves just recently released their own certificate manager that uh, is it. those are free. And I think the only supported services right now are S3 and EC2. But you could, um, I think Cloudflare, I Cloud mean Cloudfront, Ooh, excuse me. Yes, Cloudfront, not to be confused with Cloudflare. <laughs> can support those SSL certificates as well. And I've seen some people talking about the, using the Let's Encrypt program to generate the 90-day SSL certificates for their domains and using that with an, S, with an S3 bucket-based website so you can have your you can have control of your ssl certificates as well and and the power with the let's encrypt stuff is that their their api is available so your application code can request updated certificates on demand and the changes and renewals can be scripted and automated and just roll across your infrastructure i mean who's ever renewed ticket ssl certificates before Ugh. <laughs> and speaking of SSL, the only thing I wish S3 had was client-side certificate authentication. It's really bugging me that I can't, I don't, that this is not supported. That is less commonly supported by lots of things, unfortunately. Um, trying to navigate, for example, Safari's local certificate store on a Mac or an iOS device at times can be an exercise in frustration. Because figuring out what it's named at, where it imported it, how it did its bits with it can be horrible. Thanks, Apple. Very true. And some Man, other really addition on our favorite companies tonight. <laughs> <laughs> some um some other interesting things I've seen done is hosting of Yum and apt repos in S3. And this is kind of where I was leading to with the SSL client side certificate piece, because if, if that was in place, you wouldn't have to use plugins for either apt or 
uh, yum to speak the you know the S3 API language so that way you can um, host these repositories privately. Um, but there are plugins for both yum and apt that allow you to lock down a S3 bucket to your organization only and then publish your um, apt and yum repo uh, your apt and yum repos uh, internally so that we don't have to host them on a box somewhere. That's pretty awesome. That topic makes me think about the whole business as a, as a service thing that's been going on in the cloud where now we have Git repository hosting and wiki hosting and issue tracking and everything anybody's ever invented. And Hey, that's where the big bucks are. I mean, at this point, AWS is, what, 65 services? Like, Elasticsearch is in there. I'm sure that Kafka will be there soon. And SQS and SNS and all kinds of other things where they're hosting a service for you. And a lot of the information economy, the, the startups of the last 5, 10 years have been focused about providing logging as a service and metrics as a service and alerting as a service and all kinds of services. And that is a powerful use of the cloud where you don't have to spend your time and money and manpower building these things. You can just pay somebody else to do it for you. But there's a cost. There's always a cost. My biggest concern is just liability uh, in terms of how long is that service going to be viable. I mean, a lot of these startups uh, or businesses, they're not necessarily startups, uh, they'll either get bought out or they'll just get shut down. And, you know, what do you do? Um, you know, especially if that's your core business. I, th- I think that's one thing you got to be careful. If your core business is running on something that is a service that you're paying for, you really need to analyze what would happen if that service shuts down tomorrow. Yeah, and if you're a software development house, a Git repo hosting is a core business to you. Your Jenkins slaves are a core business to you. How do you Issue make sure tracking. that... Yeah, all of these things, they're, they're core competencies. You have to be able to do them correctly. And yes, there are established players who will likely not go out of business, you know, GitHub for Git repo hosting. But it also means that you're paying somebody else to handle it for you. And if you don't want to have the time and expertise locally to do it, yes, you can pay somebody else to do it for you. There's usually an increased cost and you lose a lot of control doing it. So it's it's finding the balance of, do I buy a physical box and stick it in a closet somewhere? Do I spin up a VM? Do I get EC2 instances up and going? Or do I go fully to the as-a-service model where I let somebody else do everything for me and I just pay them with my credit card every month and they give me a thing? Doing some recent numbers, um, the Elk stack that I am running for one of my clients is about seven times cheaper than the the easily quotable hosted logging platforms will offer you the space at. And that's including staff time. So that's impressive, my friend. There can be a, a significant cost savings doing it yourself, but it also means that you now have people on staff and you have payroll hours and you have all kinds of other pieces you have to keep track of. So it's a service-by-service service decision that has to be made, and it's a careful one that has to be made. There comes a point where where scale... Um, makes it cheaper to do in-house than it is to to pay someone to do it for you. 
there comes a point where the the liability of the information that you've got in the service makes it cheaper in 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 lawyer speak i guess um to host that service locally as part of your company rather than pay someone else for it um issue tracking is a an easy one for folks to outsource it's also it contains lots of probably uh confidential data for your company in it and if only any issue tracker out there could, you know, write issue tracking halfway decently. I hate them all, but that's just me. <laughs> Another example of the risks of using a hosted service was the PARS service that Facebook purchased. And after running it for a couple of months, Facebook decided they were going to shut it down. And they were very gracious and said, okay, we're open sourcing all the libraries and we're going to keep on hosting this thing for another year. So developers who are using it, you have a year to find a new platform or, hey, here's the code, run it yourself. Um, that, that really is the exception to the rule. It is, but all these developers now, they're being told on somebody else's timeline, okay, stop what you're doing, go fix this problem because you're going to have a gaping hole in your infrastructure in 12 months time. And usually the the, the window is much shorter than that. But you're letting another company dictate how your developers spend their time. And that's also not such a, a good thing to be doing. That's not cool. So let's see here. I, I, when I, I run a few things in S3, like I do have a static site in S3, but I actually don't even front it with CloudFront. I just, I just do it out of S3 just cause I don't, I don't know. Not a lot of people view my sites. <laughs> um, for a, for a, low traffic website you know there's really nothing wrong with that but as right. far as as adding any sort of analytics or or dealing with uh large scale uh traffic um caching issues uh defending your defending your s3 bucket from attacks right even though you would think an s3 bucket is fairly hard to attack uh, still, somebody's got to deal with the 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 good and the bad traffic out there. Um, it really any of the more advanced web features are being handled by content delivery networks like Amazon's uh, CloudFront and Cloudflare. Um, and if you have deep deep pockets, Akamai. <laughs> deep pockets, yes, yes, they do a good job and they charge you for it. I think Apple still uses them primarily for their software updates and, and stuff, for pushing out stuff. But it's interesting watching the the change in the community that produces um, tools that speak HTTP. Um, I do a lot of work with Prometheus, and there are multiple requests for folks to add um, SSL uh, security to uh, the Prometheus server um, for one various you know security reason or another and developers like no use use an apache use netflix use a netflix wow where'd that come from uh use nginx or or some other sort of cdn that's that's not a problem that needs to be solved again by uh, another uh, piece of code in another application that somebody else is writing use existing tools to provide your security in front of your application. I I hear that argument, but it, it, it pain. I mean, you know, are you going to sit there and run Nginx in front of each one of your, uh, your node exporters or Stunnel? Yeah. That's, that, that's the only thing that really gets me is 
with, with that argument is I want my metrics to be collected over SSL as well. Um, but, you know, I really can't unless I either sat there and set up Nginx on all my boxes to front the node exporter or configured Stunnel to do it. Hey, if you if you did metrics over pipelines like Kafka with Kafka 0.9 release and higher, you can use Sassel and you can SSL and you can use Kerberos if you wanted. I can Kerberos off all oh. of my metrics. My life has been fulfilled. And the wailing and gnashing of teeth. Kafka is amazing and awful at the same time. I do use Cloudflare as my DNS provider, though. They have... Who in, doesn't? In they're a, free. And Well, they're free, but they're also one of the fastest. They also, are. Also, I'm, I actually do not put stuff in um, Route 53 yet, just because it is... I, I, it, it makes me nervous that they charge me by the queries and then someone theoretically could see, oh, he's, you know, he's using route 53. Let's just query it. There is no way to. Nope. There is no to, way to prevent that. DDoS. To prevent that storm that. Yeah, exactly. And then you're going to end up with a massive bill. If someone just sits there and queries you on, you know, on no end. I can't imagine that. I've seen people the case with Amazon support, but yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine AWS wouldn't go, okay, you were the victim of an attack versus this was legitimate traffic that was, you know, you have a, a popular service. That's, that's true. Still, though, 50 cents for every, like, million queries or whatever, I don't know. I mean, if you're getting, you know, tens or hundreds of hits a day, you'll never, ever hit that. No, you, you won't. I mean, if you're running a... A reasonably sized uh, business or, or you know, application that's your source of income uh, with the Amazon infrastructure. Uh, Route 53 gives you some unique abilities that are, are really kind of handy. Um, but yeah, for my personal stuff, that's, that is not an income source for me. Cloudflare is fast. It's cheap, as in free. Um, and it's, it's just been an amazing product. Plus, they have some really smart people working there. True. They're, I've learned a lot from their network uh, blog posts. Yes. You know, for someone in the field who does this for a living, eh, that's a place I learn a lot of stuff from. Now, I'm ready to really talk about something that's really near and dear to my heart. Because I, I tell you, as much as I love AWS and all this cloud stuff, I'm actually still a person who who almost still loves running his his own data centers. Am I crazy? Yes. Y- Yes-ish. <laughs> I get why I should should hate it, but I guess part of me is I actually kind of like hardware. I, you know, I, maybe I just haven't had to replace enough hard drives yet. <laughs> or RAID controllers or... <laughs> or RAID controllers. RAM or... I mean, there are people that do that and do that well, um, and especially when you're, if you are a cloud provider, uh, somebody's got to do that for you and do it at scale. Um, there are companies like Twitter that run their own uh, data centers that a lot of of Silicon Valley companies sort of aspire to be. Yeah, I guess for me especially, having done some of those lower-end pieces like the provisioning process, the controlling Pixie Boot, and 
doing things with kickstart files or whatever and, and all sorts of things and, and really controlling the the initial bits that's that's the one i guess that's the biggest part i miss about when you go to the cloud and i know you got like cloud and it and a few of all these things that kind of replace those those features um but i don't know i just enjoyed that part of it i guess i unfortunately have never really seen uh, or been in a company where data centers have been run well uh, the the data center space and resources are so expensive uh, to the company uh, or institution that the use of the space is usually highly politicized, which of course makes it very difficult to run effectively and efficiently. Um, things I don't miss about uh, having to work in an actual data center, uh, but I always found data centers a stress relief. Uh, you know, there's there's lots of operations work I need to do. But, you know, if I'm stressed out, need a break, um, in one of my former jobs, there was always some data center rack and stack work to do. And just being able to go downstairs and actually build something and see it completed and grow in physically in front of you was, was very stress relieving. Rack and servers, baby. I do not have any desire to ever rack or stack anything other than my own personal hardware ever again in my life. If I've bought it to put in my house, that's one thing, but I do not enjoy the process of going into a loud air conditioned room for hours at a time and doing very repetitive tasks where you're lifting and moving heavy sensitive things that are very expensive and dealing with cage nuts and all that mess and no, I, no. When I was doing data center work, uh, it was uh, long enough ago that most of the hardware that we got was was of high quality hardware. They they built Netra T ones to last. I've I've seen Netra T ones fall six feet, hit the floor, and keep running. Um, and beautiful hardware. Um, and not just on the Solaris end as well. I saw some uh, some great. Uh, Intel and Linux hardware. But if you drop five shelves of NetApp on on the floor, you have a problem. Oops. Oops. Hey, it's SSD stuff now, right? Um, But yeah, with uh, the advent of the cloud, um, folks use the cheapest um, hardware provider known to man um, under the assumption that uh, Google's not going to swap out a rack until that rack is 20 or 30% uh, a dead. Um, if a server fails, there's it's no issue. Your your EC2 a box spins up somewhere else. Um, so that's part of the beauty of the cloud, and, and sort of part of the curse of the cloud is the fact that we've we've lost um, quality hardware that you might be able to buy one server and have it run for a while. Uh, now, as I uh, work with uh, hardware, it's it's horribly painful because it fails constantly. And if you're, uh, if you don't design your app to deal with failure well and your load balancing to deal with failure well, um, yeah, it's painful. And if you're, does, if you're building with failure in mind, you may as well use something like EC2 or a mixture of other cloud providers, for instances. So when things fail, you just, you're prepared for it. And, 
the benefits of having your own groomed and well-built and meticulously labeled racks is, yeah, okay, I don't really care about that anymore because I have capacity other places. And yeah, it isn't as reliable. It isn't a service going to run for 10 years, but I don't care because my app isn't, this version of the app isn't going to be running in 10, in, in six months. So who cares? True. Uh, what, what frustrates me is, is I understand that failure will happen. It's not an if, it will happen. No matter how, what the quality of your stack is, you should design for failure because it will happen. What frustrates me is the fact that folks have used that, uh, that principle um, to justify uh, uh, building technology and hardware to the cheapest specifications possible. Um, there's some pride in our work somewhere, isn't there? Yeah. What? I, 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 one thing that I, I do have to say is a positive note. Both Amazon and Google, and I, I imagine some of the other providers do as well, but both of those guys are doing custom almost everything. They're designing their own motherboards. They're designing where they're choosing which CPU from like Intel or AMD to use. They're laying out, you know, the PCB of the motherboard to, to you know, benefit them. Uh, Scale I, is a beautiful thing, especially when you do it right. Right. So, I mean, and we're, and we're, you know, I know that or I believe Amazon actually does get custom Intel chips or custom designed CPU chips from them or something like that. And, and so really, I mean, you, you're starting to see, I think, maybe even better hardware than what you could purchase from a, uh, a commercial provider. The other thing that happens when, as, as the, the cloud providers push the price of hardware down and they push the quality and whatever possibly down, they push the costs down to us as well. And so Amazon cuts their prices and then Google cuts their prices and then Azure cuts their prices and then six months later, Azure cuts their prices and it goes again. It's not uncommon to have instance prices drop in price. Inst yeah, instance. It's not uncommon to have instance prices drop multiple times a year by significant margins, which means that you're not waiting until the hardware amortizes its, over its billing life cycle. You're getting the savings right now. You're getting savings in the next bill, which can be a really powerful thing as a consumer. And if you've built with failure in mind, you don't really care that things are dying more often because you just move to things that aren't dead yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that Google is, is turning out to be a, a formidable competitor to AWS because I, I believe when they really started beefing up, uh, that's when the AWS really started dropping their prices. And um, it, it's really turned out well for consumers uh, for both services because I, I believe they're, they're pretty competitive between the two. If you, you know, Sometimes I think Google edges out and then other times AWS edges out. Uh, but both of them are, are very are priced reasonably well now. Oh, definitely. And if if I could offer folks advice about hosting companies to use, you know, I would say you don't need your own data center. You can do everything in the cloud because you can. And Google and Amazon are the two companies you want to look at. And in reality, use both. Absolutely. Spread your, your failure domain as wide as you can, as fast as possible. That wraps it up for episode 15 of the Practical Operations Podcast. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thank you, and good night.